Hello and welcome to Ashes of the Imperium, a 40k podcast from sunny England. My name is Dan. And I'm Steve. Join us as we explore the 41st millennium in all its glory, as we talk narrative gaming, Warhammer lore and awesome hobby. From the grim dark corners of Imperial Hives to the outer reaches of Xenos infested space. Welcome to the Ashes of the Imperium. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Ashes of the Imperium. My name is Dan and as ever I'm joined by the illustrious Mr. Steve Foote. How are you Steve? Good. Yeah, good mate. You? Fantastic. I am living the dream as ever. Very excited to be talking all about the Um, which we got very excited about last week, didn't we? We did, yes. And we are still excited about it, which is I know. (laughs) So today what we're going to do is we're going to be talking all about the uh, White Dwarf article, uh, the first of the Warhammer 40k flashpoints. So this is the Argovan campaign, and um, it is a set of new background rules and fiction for uh, an engagement uh, called the Argovan campaign. So uh, some of you may be wondering, what what on earth is a flashpoint? So um, we did briefly touch on this in the previous episode, but for the benefit of, of those that, that may, not have, uh, may not have been listening, uh, we'll, we'll have a recap. So what are flashpoints? Flashpoints are collections of articles that explore a particular region or war zone in a specific point in time. Flashpoints contain new rules for you to try out on the battlefield, plus new stories and background about the setting, giving you plenty of opportunities to theme your games. You could recreate some of the battles mentioned in the background section, convert characters based on the heroes in the stories, or build a new battlefield to represent one of the theatres of war. Flashpoints span multiple issues, and articles are always marked with a flashpoint symbol, marking them easy to find in your copy of White Dwarf. So this sounds right up your street, Steve. Yes, I think for me, um, what, what you have here is a kind of a, a deep dive into a much bigger crusade that's going on, but we just get down to the level of one system and a handful of planets. Um, and then we get down to who's actually on the planets, what are the planets like, who's in charge, what are the conflicts, and he even deep dives even further into the get order of battles, which are lists of the names of the units, regiments, and fighting forces that appear in the in the conflict, appear within this flashpoint. And then the cool thing is, that's all very good. You can say that's great, Steve, lots of background, but we've, we've actually got campaign rules, we've got theatre rules, We've got agendas, which all really dovetail nicely into the rest of our um, crusade rules that we've got from the main book. So I, th- I think for me, it's just a, a sweet spot to have this little little lens on a piece of this massive galaxy-wide fight. Um, yeah, it's good fun to explore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was really interesting. Um, much like any choice in Warhammer, I did uh, flick-flack somewhat between a, a few choices because as you read each kind of planet or a little bit of a snippet, you think, oh, that would be cool. Maybe an army could look like this, blah, blah, blah. So w- what Steve and I, the task we set ourselves was that we would create a uh, a crusade force based on the Argovan system and based on one of the forces mentioned in the the background. Now, as Steve has mentioned, it does go into some of the kind of orders of battle for some of the forces of the Imperium, and it does give you little snippets on some of the Xenos forces as well. So it also breaks down the planets, which is where I think I found myself kind of drawn to because i think a planet because i wasn't necessarily going to build this army or having now written the list i, I kind of <laughs> attempted to um because it was you know purely a narrative uh, exercise so 
I wanted to base the army and kind of ground it uh, physically somewhere. And there are uh, one, two, three, four, five, six planets that are given uh, in, in detail. So for, for first of all, before we get into that, the Argovan campaign uh, is part of the Pariah Nexus ongoing uh, crusade, which uh, which is kind of, you know, we, t- we touched on it previously. It's the, the Necrons are kind of dampening emotions and doing this thing called the stilling, basically like shutting people down into sleep mode. And uh, it's in an order to, I guess, fight chaos and the warp and stuff. Yep. And uh, so kind of all that all that good stuff of, you know, if you're really zealous or, you know, faithful, then uh, you, you're m- most effective. And you can see that, for example, let's go back to planets now. So uh, Argolish. So Argolish is the Argolish. Uh, Argolish is the Argovan system's ecclesiarchal capital. Huge portions of its land are given over to colossal basilicas, cathedrals, chapels, chancels and sanctuaries. Even structures not directly dedicated to the worship of the emperor, such as handblocks and administratum offices, have been designed to resemble sacred sites um so it was here that the effect of the ceiling was its weakest which makes sense right because it's like a a cathedral planet um so it was here the necron struck hardest colossal hosts marched from dolmen gates and tomb fleets darken the skies so I, I think this is is quite cool because um already it's giving you a a vibe isn't it it's kind of like city fight um you know once in grandeur now like shattered and broken so you could think of something like an astromilitarum you know city force something like a a militia or if you were thinking about what would your necrons look like you know maybe they could be really kind of um i guess like industrial but not in a rusty way just in no. kind of like lots of you know just like bare metal kind of uh, charcoal dust and kind of you know that kind of thing lots of weathering um that could work you know there or, or maybe maybe kind of loads of like sandstony dust from where if you know, you don't know what the buildings look like maybe they're kind of all like this kind of creamy sandstone maybe they're they're covered in that kind of dust yeah yeah so it's kind of, kind of uh, sort of uh, some sort of um ceramite kind of um hybrid composite materials so yeah no exactly and then uh, the, the the mini article goes on to say um, uh, there was a daring strike of a host of Terminator armor-clad warriors of the Adamantine Lions. Um, so there you go. That's a that's a nice little a little snippet. So you know maybe maybe create an Adamantine Lion force that's you know mostly Terminators. That's that's already given you a little a little snippet there. So it then says the confusion that the Adamantine Lions caused when they slew a Necron Lord was enough for the 82nd Varkian Jackals of the Militarum Tempestus to evacuate a priceless mosaic of the Emperor uh, from the small chapel that held it. Um, so. So, like, what's that film uh, about in World War Two? Is it Monuments Men? Monuments Men, yeah, all, yeah, exactly. When they're all, like, evacuating all the priceless uh, relics in World War Two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just imagine these, like, elite Militarum Tempestus, like, dropping down from, like, their uh, their Valkyrie transport. And all these, you know, the, the few remaining civilians being like, oh, good, they're here to save us. And then just, like, launching into this cathedral and bringing out a mosaic piece by piece. <laughs> George Clooney leading the yeah, way. Yeah, George Clooney in his in his out Valkyrie. Like, are they? What are they doing? Like, are they are they hammering out? Are they like you know drilling out the the wall that the mosaics or the floor? Is it on the floor? Is it on the wall? Yeah. Do they like blast the wall off and then put it on the back of the Valkyrie in you know it complete? Or are they like putting it in little bags? You know, this piece is is a one. You know, like a jigsaw. They're like they're undoing the jigsaw piece by piece and loading it into the Valkyrie. 
I'd like to think it was like cut out as one big piece and then just slung under a Valkyrie on huge cables. I like to think that, but, you know, I also like to think they've done it piece by piece. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe they've they've handed it into the you know, the private, the, the, the most junior stormtrooper and be like, oh, just uh, bag these up for me in order. And uh, he like drops the bags and they all go in the wrong order. And then they get back to, to wherever they get back to HQ. And they're like, pass me piece A1. And he's like oh, I didn't realize you want me to label them or, oh, they're in the wrong order. And then they have to put, then they have to like have this like massive and maybe like the commissars coming to make sure they've done their work properly. And uh, yeah, they have to like put this mosaic jigsaw back. And then it turns out, you know, when you see like people that have taken like the, uh, the priceless kind of 15th century bit of art and they've like re, <laughs> they've renewed it. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a meme or something. <laughs> We've restored, this, we've restored this, it. This, this, yeah, they've restored it. And they put this mosaic back. I feel like, what the hell's that? That <laughs> looks nothing like it. Oh, so, yeah. So I didn't do an 80-second Varkian Jackals um, with a terrible mosaic. But but it, it gives you inspiration to potentially build an army led by George Clooney and the clueless private soldier. <laughs> oh, so there we go. But, but I think for me, it, it works on so many levels in that it's it drills it down to that. And it drills it down to what is the most important things that are going on here. And that for me is just an absolute reminder that, you know, the, the tactical value of it is nothing, but the spiritual or the morale value of it is huge. And that's why they would do it. So I, I think those sort of things just give it so much more flavor than just so-and-so fought so-and-so for 10 days on Ridge 46, which, you know, I'm sure there was loads of those that happened, but they don't feel very 40k, do they? No, 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 absolutely. So um, let's just touch on the other uh, planets because we actually chose the the same planet to base our forces on. So I'm going to touch on the other planets uh, just to kind of have a bit of background. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the forces that I considered doing. So um, Veronica, no worlds in the system have, have a sparser population as Veronica, Veronica uh, but none are more strategically significant. The battles that raged here for the Noctilith deposits are easily among the most savage and brutal in the entire Argovan system. Here, Adeptus Mechanicus Forge Shrines sat atop or alongside ancient Necron Extracto Arcania, uh, Extractio Arcana, um, and millions died amongst them and, and around countless other objectives. So that's cool. So maybe that's like a, you know, an Admech army. It mentions the Tome Keepers. Uh, so that's a, a, a brand new chapter that the White Dwarf team have kind of come yeah. up with. And if you've been reading White Dwarf recently, you can kind of follow their exploits. So it mentions the Tome Keepers there, which is quite nice because they're kind of like bringing in this this new chapter into into the lore. So um, there's that one, right? And then Saronic. So this is a really interesting uh, planet, which I thought was could potentially be a cool little thing to do uh, with my army. Um, but because you'd already chosen Astro Militarm, I decided not to. I wanted to do something different. So um, Saronic is a, a strange world of contradiction. On one hand, its population is poor, nomadic, and the prey of extreme fauna that top the planet's food chain. On the other hand, it has been a favourite of the entire subsector's nobility to travel there to hunt and claim pelts, claws, and skulls for the largest creatures, of the largest creatures, rather, for display. So kind of almost like a kind of Katachan death world safari. Yeah. So I, I had a, an idea of maybe to do some Katachans um, because I've got a kind of mini Katachan obsession at the moment. So um, I thought that would be really cool. You could have like loads of, um, you, you know, like just jungle fighters, you know, going around the, the savannah, like hunting down beasts and using the Citadel skull kit to kind of flesh out their bases and things like that. Um, or 
um, slightly differently. It's so um, it's got uh, these big like lakes. So a particular unusual geographic feature of Saronic is its very large lakes of high alkaline liquids. Once thought to be devoid of life, it came as a great surprise um, at when Necrons appeared on the shores of Lake Kirel from the Dolmen Gate that must have been at the lake's bottom. So essentially like Necrons kind of teleporting in through the lakes and kind of coming up yeah. like the uh, like that scene in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, exactly. So you could, you could then kind of think, right, okay, so outside of the kind of jungly bits um, where, you know, you've got these massive lakes and they're devoid of life. So what, what could you, what cool thing could you do to have a force that, that operates in there? You know, maybe some sort of, I don't know, like Tyranids that um, have adapted to live in the lakes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think for me, this one's really interesting because you kind of think, well, what might a a hunting lodge for the for the rich look like you know is it is it going is is it going to have to defend itself so is it is it going to look more like a bastion or is it actually if the lakes are actually devoid of too much life then you know perhaps you you get the lodges on jetties going out oh, into yeah, the maybe lake. the lodges are on the lakes yes yeah yeah maybe the lodges are on the lakes so that uh, it can defend itself. So yes. rather than trying to like shoehorn the Tyranid forces, managed to magically adapt to the uh, <laughs> to the <laughs> lifeless lakes. Um, they are indeed lifeless, and uh, yeah, they use it as their kind of their safety net. So when when the beasts get too too crazy, they uh, they jump on the this kind of like maybe it's got like this kind of rope bridge type jetty system that can yep. take humans yep. but can't take bigger beasts. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So I think for me that as as a as a as a you know scenery kind of challenge, I think would look really cool. And you could you could obviously make it. I think because it is for the the very rich and powerful, you'd probably want to have some gothic elements to it. But it still needs to be practical. So. Yeah. No, I, I I do like that. I see where you're going. I think if I was going to do it, I would do something more along the lines of this kind of like kind of nineteenth century hunting. You know, Victorian hunting lodge. Um, maybe using bits of the the lake town, you know, with that yeah. kind of um, imagine a lake town building, but completely forty kified. I think Laura from uh, from GW did something. Pegasus did something recently um, using a bunch of Lord of the Rings kits and forty k kits. But yeah, so like on the lake, this kind of lake town house built lo- with loads of forty k elements. So it's kind of it brings it down into this kind of no poor nomadic country, but has got this noble kind of really horrible i don't know like colonial vibe to it yeah yeah i I think and i think you're right i think they'll they'd want to you know slum it in a way even though because it's part of the experience isn't it exactly the nobles want to come down and like live with their live with the poor people (laughs) and then like get on their get on their um emergency transport back to the back to the uh, cities yes yeah yep a little 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 shuttle sat on a pad yeah, a little, of, a little, you know, small party shuttle, like an Arvis lander on the back. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a big, big old lodge. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, there's your project. But like that, that's what I mean. It's just got this like tiny little, you know, we're talking about like, it's it's one big paragraph. So I guess it's kind of like a quarter of a page of text. And just, just with that paragraph of content, we're already talking about like a scenery board, you know, with like a lake, a jungle, you know, what do the beasts look like? You, know, you could have Astro Militarum kind of Katachan style army. You know, what about the bodyguards of 
the the nobles that go down there are yes. they these kind of noble house guards that go go along for the for the ride and protect their masters or are they more like kind of hired mercenaries that the nobles don't really like but they they know the ground really well yeah you you, you probably need your, your local tracker and maybe your, your big game hunter the one that yeah yeah so we're like using all these like <laughs> modern cliches um but no i think it's cool it's it's cool to draw inspiration from those elements and then make make them into 40k and be like oh look because you just it's a bit reminds me somewhat of the oh what's that film with jennifer lawrence in it um hunger games yeah you know when they go from the districts into the kind of main city bit um and you know all the all the rich city folk are just like these complete ridiculous cliches and they're just so over the top and they've got like ridiculous hats and silly hair and uh i just (laughs) kind of i I kind of almost imagine it like that i I, I think i think they they have the have the power and have the money to you know travel from one planet to another just to you know go trophy hunting just to kill something else yeah 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 because getting bored of killing their own citizens and workers but i think the nice thing about this is you know that paragraph's got us this far but further on we've actually got we've got a theater of war for it which actually drills it down into even more detail and actually playable tables to roll on yeah, absolutely. And what we'll do is we'll we'll do all the planets in one go, and then we'll do all the rules uh, in a row because not all the planets have rules. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's quite interesting because at the beginning we did read out it said something along the lines of da, 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 you could create recreate some of the battles mentioned in the background section, convert characters based, or build a new battlefield to represent one of the theaters of war. So it's only got three sets of rules for three of the planets, which are uh, Saronic. Argovan and Hishrea. Yep. However, it doesn't have rules for uh, Veronica, the one we mentioned before. Uh, it doesn't have rules for Argolish and then Iasso as well. So yeah, you can like go wild if you want to create your new kind of a, your own tables to roll on. Then then absolutely you can. So so yeah, that's that's Saronic. That's cool. We've got a few ideas there. Now uh, Argovan was one of the ones where I I really thought I was going to do an army and. Um, because it had a tiny little snippet uh, of lore. So, uh, Argoven. Here is where Argoven's fortune was made so many millennia ago. A temperate world, ideal for human habitation. Argoven has rare mineral wealth. Uh, whilst few in number, its deposits are unusually rich in minerals found on barely one in a thousand systems. Uh, materials the Adeptus Mechanicus have sought avidly. So, uh, oh, and actually, this is, this is quite critical to the rules. I'll read this bit out as well. That being said, Extensive mining has created a man-made fault line through the middle of the planet, known as the New Argovan Fault. The surrounding area is beset by serious earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanic eruptions on a regular basis that in the past have cost millions of lives. It was upon this world that Task Force 11 encountered a significant gene-stealer cult presence. And that was what made me want to to build a gene stealer cult army for this for this system it was just this kind of like significant gene stealer cult presence dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and it kind of got me thinking like what would a gene stealer cult presence look like on a planet it's kind of heavily mining so it's quite and it, it actually became quite generic like i love the gene stealer cult models but there wasn't anything unique about it it was like gene stealer cult on a mining world and i'm like okay well they're all from a mining world because that's what the models look like so it didn't it didn't kind of spur me on to think how can i make this army different and unique it would just be quite a box damage to the cult army and i thought uh, maybe maybe because we're doing like 25 power and then a 50 power army so i thought of maybe doing 25 power of g to the cult and then 25 power of tyranids okay 
um, which is quite cool. And but very like light, I guess, like um, lictors and gene stealers and stuff in the 25 led by Malanthrope rather than kind of the big gribblies. But I thought, no, I, it didn't give me anything unique enough. But I think so. I think I think for, for me, what, what that would mean is that both you and I are looking to go deep on, you know, theming. But it also means if you have got Gene Skiller cult army, um, then you can just fit in and play those games there and, you you know, you're good to go. Yeah. You don't need to come up with this like crazy hunting lodge that's <laughs> that's on the water. You don't need to come up with all these mad ideas. You can just kind of run your Gene Skiller cults in the Argoven system. And one of the other things that that made me avoid the Gene Skiller cult here was that there wasn't actually any further mention in the lo- in the law, I don't think, no. that I could see. No. So it, d- it didn't kind of increase. Having said that, what I actually ended up with is is quite similar um, and is quite stock as it was, but w- whatever. We'll just ignore that when we get to it. Right, Steve, uh, we've done Argolish, yep. which was the ecclesiastical capital. Do you want to tell me about uh, Iasso? Iasso. Iasso is a failing agri-world. Production has fallen to 10% of the levels from four decades ago. The cause itself is claimed to be highly mysterious. Three successive planetary governors have been installed and executed for incompetence. It is vital for the imperial war effort in the region that the world's productivity is restored. When Task Force 11 arrived in system, Iasu was the planet closest to being completely stilled. So this is the effect of what the Necrons are doing. Battle systems for a number of orders, including the Order of the Argent Shroud, Our Martyred Lady and the Wounded Heart, and the Sublime Adoration deployed to the planet in droves alongside fracturous militia brigades and regiments of Astra Militarum with thousands of attached ministerum priests. These forces, inflamed with the righteous faith, were dropped onto the world in the grip of a Necron Tomb World's Awakening. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... You can just imagine it being overgrown. You can imagine like huge processing combine tractor f- machines that are all rusting away because they've just been left. Um, yeah, I think I think there's huge opportunity here. I think it would, you know, silos, rusting, collapsed silos that whatever is there, <laughs> they're um, growing. Is so uh, I think. Again, and just another gaming table that wouldn't be wouldn't feel typical. Yeah, and also it gives you scope to go a bit crazy because it says production has fallen to ten uh, percent of levels. Was it ten percent? Yeah, ten percent. Ten percent. Ten percent of levels from four decades ago. The cause itself is claimed to be highly mysterious, and that's all it gives you. Yeah. So, like, like, what is that? Yeah. Is it kind of a a um, like a natural thing is it the kind of earth's been over farmed and the nutrients have all been sucked out by the imperium and it just they won't grow or is it something more sinister yeah is yeah, it yeah. is it human you know is someone like poisoning it Ooh. yeah yeah i mean maybe the next nearest agri world wasn't getting enough contracts so the nice the, the best thing to do is blame it on the necrons but go in and actually you know poison the population you know, yeah with- maybe some like some of the planetary governor's enemies yeah. have been because they've all been executed so um maybe some of their enemies have been like sabotaging the planet somehow like putting something in the water that's used to or the fertilizers that are used to uh, kind of keep things going or maybe it's something like you know tyranid bioorganisms in the soil uh, yeah yeah obviously i've got tyranids on the brain for some reason um <laughs> 
but uh, I think I've mentioned them in three planets so far. Um, and uh, I was I was desperate to I was desperate to do a Tyranid <laughs> army for this. But sad times I didn't. Uh, I, yeah. So like, what what could it be? Maybe it's a, a warp taint. You just never know. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think you know they've they've sent down the 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 troops with the 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 righteous faith that can overcome anything that's there but i think that would be cool the fact that they go there thinking perhaps it's distilling but actually it's not and they've got something else to deal with and suddenly yeah i I i think it's cool that a sentence like that that could have easily just gone this is this and they've just said mysterious instead it's such a seed to do so many other things with it i love it and not only that it gives you an indication of the kinds of armies that you would build if you were going to do an iaso formed uh army so battle sisters or ash militarum with loads of priests like you've kind of got those like fervent maniacs you know the kind of religious fanatics because given that this planet is the one that's has has been affected the most by the stilling you want to send your most fervent fanatics to do the fighting there so they're not kind of so they can overcome it yeah yeah 100 right so steve tell me about hishrea because you and i both chose our armies to come from here didn't we yes yes so we get a nice little diagram in the white dwarf which is shows the system itself with all the planets and their positions kind of makes sense because it's gonna be coolest always winter never christmas <laughs> basically like narnia <laughs> less, less wardrobes maybe Farthest from the system's star, Hishrea is in a state of never-ending winter. Its surface is laced with jagged mountain chains, vast inhospitable tundras, dark seas, and hyperactive cryovolcanoes, which sound incredibly cool, but I have no idea what that means. The majority of the planet's population is nomadic, following mega shoals of helictopriopods over the vast oceans on large hunting vessels. So yeah, like hyperactive cryovolcanoes sound pretty legit, and we're only like two lines in. So what else have we got? Mega shoals of helicopriods. No idea what those are, but sound pretty scary. And hunting vessels, large hunting vessels. Yeah. So they're mega shoals of lots of little things, or are they mega shoals of lots of really big things. Just don't know. Like, don't know. And what's a what does a hunting vessel look like on a I freezing know. a freezing ocean? Like, is the ocean itself frozen? So therefore, is it something that like hovers above the ice? Is it like an ice faring vessel or is it just, you know, it, the the water is freezing cold, but it's not frozen? Yes. You just don't know. So that's no. cool. Loads of loads of scope there for some kind of scenery stuff. I, I quite liked um, what's that planet that they make the clones on? You know, I think Obi-Wan goes to visit in episode two or something, goes to yeah. visit. And it's yeah. like this big kind of water planet. Yes. Yes. Um, they kind of got like oil rig types yeah yeah i can kind of imagine something a bit like that yeah so there we go so so uh, uh, tell me more about this steve this sounds interesting i'm curious tell me more (laughs) Uh, most did he have a car (laughs) oh dear (laughs) all right hold it together steve right most of the remainder live in one of the dozens of hive cities that sit atop the world's thermal vents suffering a life of severe harshness most are committed to work in the extremely dangerous gas mines or guard the tunnels from horrifying frostworm incursions now there's a little side note from here um it says although only four inches in length average frostworms move in colonies through the ground as many as hundreds in number and they can strip a person of flesh in less than a minute sounds pretty scary it's like that film piranha yes yes yeah 
So imagine being a like a gas vent, a thermal vent mechanic. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're going to have like to have hitting something with a spanner and suddenly like a little frost web appears and you're like, oh, yeah. I, hey, I swear I compared this to something the other day. Did I compare it to that scene in Lost World? The Compsognathus, you know, when he gets chewed up by yeah. the little dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. What did I compare that to? I, I don't know. Is that in your imagination land? I, I don't know. I had this conversation <laughs> very recently. It may have been on this podcast. So if I'm using the same metaphor of two episodes or three episodes in a row, I apologize. But basically, imagine that scene where he's like, oh, hey, cute little dinosaur. Like a little frost realm comes up. It's like, oh, hey, cool. Hey, little frost realm. What you doing? You want to be my pet? And then, like, just loads of them come around. He's like, oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Basically 50% mouth parts. Yeah. (laughs) Like wormy squigs and cold. Horrible. (laughs) Exactly. Cool. Tell me more. Despite its remoteness, many Argolitian missionaries have travelled here to preach. The populace is thus hardy, strong-willed, and faithful. The planetary governor of Pondius Flax was quick to respond to the Necron incursions, as well as to provide as much aid as possible to Task Force 11. In one notable engagement, the local Horitian mountain men set explosives on the underside of the ice of a frozen lake. With great discipline and courage, they lured thousands of Necrons onto the surface before springing the trap, detonating the charges, and sending the Xenos automatons into the depths. So like every every sentence is gold there as far as I'm concerned. Every sentence, yeah. This planet is just pure narrative gold. And you're just like, right, I immediately want to do Frozen Necron Warriors. Because, like, you just think about it. Those Necron Warriors at the bottom of the sea, like, great, fine, they're under the sea. But we've already heard from the uh, Saronic Lakes that they can survive in and come out of the water. Yeah. So just imagine you're like, haha, we are the Hirishian mountain men. Look at us. We're so amazing. We've like, you know, zapped all these Necrons to the bottom of the sea and they like all go off to celebrate. And then like over the hours, the Necrons are like slowly dragging themselves along the seabed yeah. until they get to the shore yeah. and they like come out from underneath the ice. <laughs> all we got to hope is the Helictoproids eat metal. Yes. The, maybe they, they encounter a mega shoal or yeah. maybe they befriend the mega shoals and then they ride their mega shoals out into battle. And then your, your Hrishrian mountain men are absolutely um, steamed, aren't they? Yeah, totally skeebed. Exactly. But I think for me, all of those things are totally fantastic, totally 40K and just these tiny little seeds that you can decide to make a hunting ship to make a hive to make a gas mining installation it, it's all it's all great it's all great i love it definitely and this the as you say it's it all gold there's so much there so what we're going to do now is we're going to talk a little bit about the forces um of the argovan campaign specifically which force that we chose because we both chose a force from history didn't we we did we did i think it's probably worth mentioning here that the, the kind of order of the battle, the forces that take place in the campaign, they're, they're, they're broken down into the number of regiments or the number of spearheads or echelons. Um, and, you know, they obviously, because this is kind of a historical happening, you know, this is like it said at the beginning, it's a, it's a slither of time and, and place. Because it's written as an account, isn't it? Yes. But that doesn't mean you can't just pick this up and play it with any force. You know, 
because who knows what was fighting on one of the edges of the planets or one of the smaller planets. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a... Well, so the, the, this being an excerpt of the introduction to Volume 7 of the definitive account of the war for the Parian Nexus, written by myself, esteemed appointed, appointed historiator Alphus Recorix Smy. So as it says itself, it's purely an excerpt. It's only Volume 7. So what do all the other volumes say? <laughs> uh, this is just from one bloke. So... yeah. You know, if you if you're if your army and you want to run your army in an Argoven campaign game and you're not seeing something here, then I wouldn't worry about it. Like just run your run your stuff and just say it's you know, just find a space for them. That's what that's what narrative gaming is all about: finding your space in the in the universe. Yeah, exactly. And on, and then the flip side is the fact that we have got these lists of names of regiments and armed units of which some we recognise. You know, they're, they're um, but there was definitely some that. I have no idea what they are, what their makeup is. Um, uh, we've got the Sondoran gearheads. There's, there was nine regiments of Sondoran gearheads. Um, there were 32 regiments of the Toes and Tank Corps. Three regiments of Cadian shock troopers. But, but, yeah, I've, exactly. I've, I've heard of them. Yes, yes. 15 regiments of the Valhalla Hot Ice Warriors. So there you go. So, so some very kind of famous regiments operating there. My uh, favorite is the uh, 14 Brute Regiments of the Tagax 13 Ogre and Alicia, aux- Auxilia rather. Yeah, yeah. And then right to the bottom is the one that I plumped for, which was 219 Scratch Battalions of the Horitian Mountain Men. And so what was it that attracted you to the Hishrian Mountain Men? I think, um, I think we kind of got enough plot points in the background of kind of where they live, how they've been brought up, what they have to do to survive. And then for me... Combined with the um, the rules for fighting in that battle zone, also gave me a sense of what they have to endure. That then goes to me. Then right here's the challenge, Steve. How do you bring that to life using Ashtamilitarian book, a great good book? How, how do we? How do you? How do you make all that work for narrative play? And I think for me that was the great challenge and why I really enjoyed this bit. And I think that's one of the reasons why I steered away from the. Genius Leader Cult is because they were only mentioned once. Whereas even though uh, the the Eldari are only mentioned briefly later, uh, there was enough about Hishria that made me think, actually, I, can't, I quite want to do that. And and also, I knew that you were doing a Hishrian force, so I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I also did one? Yeah. Yep. So it goes on. So that's that's kind of the Imperial. So that's the, the system and uh, the Imperial war hosts. So the, the Imperial war hosts are all part of a joint task force called Task Force 11. And uh, it gives you gives you all sorts of details on the various. We touched mostly on the astromilitarum stuff, but um, it's got things like um, night households, adeptus sorority, adeptus sororitas rather, um, astromilitarum mechanicus, even the astarte. So you've got things like the tome keepers, the obsidian jaguars. Never heard of those. The atlantean spears, and indeed the uh, the death watch. So that's enough about the imperium. Let's talk about the xenos forces. Yes. Of the Argoven campaign, because this is where my, my little force comes in. So, um, obviously, because this is written by a an Imperial historiator, uh, there isn't a huge amount of detail on the Xenos forces, um, but I do I do enjoy the uh, the Eldari comments. So, uh, it, it touches on the Necrons there, and it says, Scattered reports also told of the presence of the Eldari. Records suggest between four and 5,000 officers and troops of the Astra Militarum were executed for spreading malicious rumours, 
lying to a superior, wasting a superior's time, and gross negligence for reporting the sightings of these enigmatic creatures. Through painstaking research, with much gratitude due to my colleagues and no doubt the intervention of the Emperor himself, I was able to ascertain that the sightings of the Eldari were of troops from the Alitokcraft world and a mask of harlequins known as the Dreaming Shadow. What their agendas were, or indeed are, in the Argoven system have yet to be revealed. I doubt <laughs> little that whatever goals they seek to achieve are little in line with our own and are to our detriment. And there's even a little side note that kind of goes on to say like, yeah, well, yeah, they executed four to 5,000 people, but uh, serves them right for spreading bad morale rumors about the Eldari, even though they were probably reporting things that were true. So that that's kind of what, what got me curious because I actually had a, an Alitok force when I was very, very young and couldn't paint them for toffee. So uh, I thought, oh, Alitok, they sound cool. Let's do that. And not only that, is that the, the Imperium don't really know that they're there or when they're told that they're there, don't, can't admit it or are kind of executing their own people. So I just like the idea that the Alitok kind of craft world are you know famous for their use of, of Eldari Rangers and there's this kind of stealthy element to them. And I think that works really well kind of in this narrative. Not only that, but um, the, the Alitok craft world is also specifically known for its, uh, and this is reading from a lexiconum, uh, known for its vicious war against the Necrons, begun when the Seer Council of Lytok saw the rise of Imitek the Stormlord as a fulfillment of the prophecy of doom arising from the Book of Mournful Night. Lytok eventually acquired an ancient crystalline map of every tomb world in the galaxy, though no, now only fragments remain. This map is used in conjunction with their network of outcasts and exodites to orchestrate a battle against the Necron menace. So mm. I thought that was super cool, like kind of ties in there yep. and used in conduction with their network of outcasts and exodites. And who doesn't like Eldari riding dinosaurs? Exactly. Like what's not to like there? I yes. just don't get it. No. One day we'll see them. One day. Absolutely. <laughs> so those are the forces. And uh, Steve and I will be doing Ashbilitarum and Eldari respectively. Uh, but before we do that, well, let's talk about the theatres of war. There's also a campaign that you can that you can play. Uh, and it's sort of how to how to play the game for forming alliances and all that jazz. But we're going to focus on the theatres of war. So the Argovan Fault Zone is a, a flashpoint uh, place. So basically, this is kind of like racked with volcanoes and tectonic activity. This theatre of war uses fracture tokens to represent weak points in the earth caused by the local populace's mining activities. Over the course of the game, fault lines will open between these fracture tokens, endangering those lying along their path. Before the battle, after the battlefield has been created, the players roll off. Starting with the winner, players alternate placing fracture tokens on the battlefield until each has placed three tokens. Each fracture token must be placed more than nine inches away from any other fracture token. Each player assigns the numbers one to three to their fracture tokens that they placed. At the start of each battle round, the players must determine which, if any, fault lines have opened up on the Argovan surface. The number of fault lines that open at the start of the battle round is based on the battle round number as shown on the table below. So on battle round one, zero, two to three, there's one, and from battle round four, there's two fault lines. When the fault when a fault line opens, each player rolls one d3 to determine one of the fracture tokens that they place at the start of the battle. That fault line, the fault line that opens up, then runs between these two points. Draw a straight line from the center of one of these fracture tokens to the center of the other. Each unit excluding titanic units or units that can fly that lies beneath this line falls foul of the fault line and becomes affected by it but what do they become affected and it says uh, I'm, I'm pausing because it's over the next page so uh, if a titanic <laughs> unit lies beneath this line turn page roll 1d6 well wait a minute it says titanic oh is it so if a titanic unit lies beneath this line uh, roll 1d6 on a four plus 
uh, the unit also falls foul of the fault line and becomes defensive. Okay. So it doesn't affect things that can fly, but it can it can affect Titanic on a four up. Yeah. Uh, each unit can only fall foul of one fault line per battle round. Every time a unit becomes affected by a fault line, roll on the tectonic effect table. See what happens to it. Open fault lines then remain open for the remainder of the battle. If, when rolling to see if a new fault line opens, an, an open fault line already runs between the two faction tokens, then roll again to see if the units on the line fall foul of the fault, as described below. Each time model or units, excluding Titanic or flying, uh, makes an advanced move or charge move across any open fault lines, roll 1d6 on a 1, that unit suffers one immortal route. So the tectonic effect is a d6 table with four uh, serials, and yep. number one is catastrophic collapse. The ground cracks and a chasm yawns wide. Warriors who do not plummet to their doom must clamber back to relative safety. This unit suffers 2d3 mortal wounds. Brutal. Yep. Um, until the end of the battle round, half the result of any advance or charge rolls made for this unit. Oh, you do not want to be caught in that, do you? No, that's, that's, that's definitely a one result. That's definitely it? a one result, isn't it? Deadly fall. A fissure splits the ground. Whilst many warriors jump out of harm's way, not all are so lucky. This unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. Till the end of the battle round, half the result of any advance or charge rounds. Fine. Uh, three to four is unsteady footing. The ground trembles with pent-up fury, knocking warriors from their feet and rattling crews within vehicles. Until the end of the battle round, half the mover characteristics of models in this unit. And then uh, the last one is uh, five to six shaken. The battlefield shakes with rage, and while some could keep the footing, the aim is, their aim is thrown off by a tectonic upheaval. Until the end of the battle round, each time a model in this unit makes attack, subtract one for the unit's attack's hit roll, rather. So yeah, so like even if you're only shaken, that's still a fairly brutal thing. Although, given that it's ninth edition, you can't minus more than one for your attack hit roll. Yes. So if you are under minus one hit, you might as well shoot something, you know, that's also got a minus one to hit already because you can't be minus two. Yes. So, you know, look at the price yes. there. <laughs> so that is the uh, the Argovan Fault Zone, which sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think for me, you know, thinking about where you're going to be to put your tokens down. Now, obviously, the, the leaps from one to the other is pretty random, but I think there is some shenanigans to be had about placing them. That oh yeah, that's where that's where the magic comes in, isn't it? It's placement. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like I'm going to place them near my objectives, and I'm going to place. Although that that said, you do only get a, you randomize the the um the numbers of them, don't you? And then you obviously randomize the uh, like which ones open up. You you do, but I think you roll a dice. Uh, sorry, no, you assign numbers one to three, but you randomize the, the, the way they open up. So you can you can kind of, like, you could be cheeky with the placement of them, but you can't necessarily be cheeky about which ones activate. Exactly. But, but you do know it will be one of mine linking to one of yours. So oh, yeah, absolutely. So you can kind of work out a web of opportunities, what it could be. Definitely. Especially as they stay as well. Oh, yeah, they remain open. Yeah. So you could end up with this kind of center of the battlefield or a side of the battlefield, which is an absolute um, spider's web of, of of problems. Which which is which, which is what a surprise! That's exactly the effect that we wanted it to be because it's the ground opening up in these huge cracks and fissures. So yeah, I love it. Awesome. So tell me about the Saronic Lakes, Steve. So the Saronic Lakes. Um, these are broken down actually it's quite nicely, and we've got kind of three effects here or three um, features of this uh, battlefield. Uh, I just quickly read the intro. So the battlefields known as Saronic Lakes are marshy and waterlogged. 
The skies above are racked by dark storms and forever lashed by torrential rain. Rumored to be resting within half-submerged ruins are lost Archaeotech, but many treasure seekers have been lost to the murky depths of the hidden water sinks and fast-flowing rivers, never to be heard from again. So treacherous waters. Uh, there's a designer's note here to say, hey guys, you're going to need some water on your table. So I think that that, that that's kind of a given. But It's fairly, fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, treacherous waters before the battle after the battlefield has been created players must agree what pieces of area terrain are water-based then the attacker must roll 1d3 consult the treacherous trait table that follows the result is an additional rule applied to all water-based terrain features on the battlefield alternatively the players can just choose to roll each water-based terrain feature individually or they can simply apply to decide to ascribe one of the following traits to each water-based area feature based on what they feel is most narratively suitable. That's probably what I would do. You know, what do they look like? What which, what does that look like? What does that look like? Um, but if we, we get to a nice, nice, nice chunky D3 table for the treacherous traits for all treacherous waters. Uh, on a one, we get alkaline waters. Each time an attack is made against a model that is Receiving the benefits of cover from this terrain feature, improve armor penetration characteristics of that attack by one. So strong alkali chemicals are weakening the armor. Well, they're making your well is leaky, aren't they, really? Exactly. Deep water. The waters here are unusually deep and not transversible by regular troops. Unless you can fly, models cannot set up within or move over any part of this terrain feature. So that's quite key. That's going to make literally no go zone areas on the table and then if you're all a three you get sinking sands this area is a boggy quagmire of quicksand that can suck armored vehicles down to their doom unless you can fly vehicle models cannot set up within or move over any part of this terrain feature and then the next one that we have is uh miserable weather at the start a of each weather pack. system steve <laughs> i know how excited you are by this yeah weather uh, the thing is a battlefield isn't just flat it you know it's three-dimensional it, it, it there are stuff above it so weather I'm, I'm all over weather at the start of each battle round the player with the first turn rolls 1d3 and consults the tape below to determine the color weather effects that weather effect lasts until the end of the battle round. So on a one eye of the storm, dark clouds gather ahead, but they have not yet released their fury. No effect. On a two, sheeting rain. Just make sure I say that correctly. Torrential rain lashes the battlefield, reducing visibility and soaking the already sodden and grumpy warriors below. Subtract D6 from the range characteristic of all ranged weapons for all models on the battlefield to a minimum of six. Oof. That's cheeky, isn't it? Yeah, that would make a difference, actually. Especially with something like a melter gun. Yeah, it's got range say, 12. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's because it's changing the range characteristic of the weapons, isn't it? Yeah. So, that, so uh, does that then affect the, um, you would you only get the melter rule within three inches? I would guess so, yeah. Mm. Rapid fire as well. Um, and if you roll a three, it's strong gales, howling winds, buffer every warrior. Gales of such strength cause them to stumble and falter in their stride. Each time an advance roll is made for a unit on the battlefield, subtract one from that roll. And each time a charge roll is made for a unit on that battlefield, subtract two from that roll. So, yeah, that, that can make all the difference, can't it? Yeah, I like this. And also, I like the fact that, you know, it, it does say, yes, designers note, try and use as many water features as possible. But equally, you could just run your ruins and say, 
like all the ruins are kind of submerged ruins. Yeah. And just say like that's where I don't know that's where they've kind of like sunken into the ground. Yes. The, the, the ground itself is marshy, but where the buildings are is it all sunken and and is is the treacherous terrain. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that because then that makes sense why it's ruined because it's sunk and and yeah, you have to play the gamble of um you know, is is it is it deep water where you can't go in the buildings and you can't use that terrain to stand in a window, can you? You have to stand behind it. Yeah, so, so there's, there's all, all sorts of kind of potential there. But I'm just thinking, like, if, if you're if you're thinking, oh, this is super cool, but, like, I don't have any, like, rivers or swamps, then just kind of be flexible with the rules and make it work for you. Yeah, 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 absolutely. At the end of the day, this is a, a kind of sandbox, isn't it? And it's up to up to players to work out how best to use them in the games. Yeah, and I think as we get more and more of these, I think we're going to end up with, like, a, a suite of effects that you can make up your own planet and say well we want this weather uh but we it's definitely going to be lava so we'll have the tectonic effects um but then we'll have the you know swarms of insects from a different flashpoint that we haven't even got yet and we'll use that for this game and so i think for me it becomes it's the real sort of toolkit for making your own games up so it's great definitely last we have the mysterious objectives um, if you're using any objective markers before determined deployment zones, the attacker must roll one D3 and consult the mysterious objective effect table. Uh, the result is additional rule applied to all objectives markers for the battle. Alternatively, the players can choose to roll for each objective marker individually, or they can simply agree to ascribe one for the following effects for each objective marker on the battlefield based on what they think is most narratively suitable. So we've got three mysterious objective effects so we've got ancient archaeotech fragments of waterlogged archaeotech remain in on this site such treasures are valuable beyond comprehension and will not be lightly abandoned so what's the units within three inches of the subjective marker add one to the combat attrition tests taken for that unit and if your warlord is within range of the subjective marker at the start of your combat phase you receive one command point so that's that's pretty good, isn't it? That's quite cool, isn't it? So it's basically like saying they they found something super cool that they want to hang on to, and it's going to make them stay there for longer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're going to they're going to be smart about keeping hold of it and use tactics to do so. Absolutely. Uh, submerged statuary, which is easy for me to say. The marshy ground around this objective actually hides ancient fallen statuary. Warriors can take cover behind these submerged slabs of masonry in order to prepare for an ambush. So once the unit is within three inches of this objective marker, each time a charge is declared against that unit, if it is not within engagement range of any enemy units, it can either hold steady or set to defend. If a unit holds steady, any overwatch attacks made by that unit this phase will score hits on rolls of five plus. If a unit sets to defend, it cannot fire overwatch this phase, but you add one to hit rolls when resolving attacks made with melee weapons by models in that unit until the end of the fighting phase. So this one kind of feels like it needs an objective that looks like something you could um, fight over, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. But I like it. And then number three, unnerving sigils. Strange lights and symbols radiate from the murky waters surrounding the subjective, unnerving even the most stalwart soul. So this is a bit of a trigger for me because I'm messing around with LEDs at the moment and that really wants me, I want to make that one glow in the dark. But well, LED go. terrain. Yes. Uh, the rules are, while a unit within three inches is objective marker, subtract two from the unit's leadership characteristic. That's that's quite cool. Yeah. Because so, they're, they're not, and that's, you know, it's a D3 table, so... Two of them are decent and one of them's two of them are buffs and one of them's a debuff. So 
Yeah, and you, you, you need I, to... I'll take those odds. <laughs> but you need to score the objectives to win the game, don't you? So Yeah, exactly. You're going to be there anyway. <laughs> Just a little bit of risk. And then lastly, we've got the Hishria Mountain Valley. So the Hishria Mountain Valley is an inhospitable place wreathed in blood-freezing fogs and assaulted by blizzards that can strip flesh from bone. Waging war in this locale is particularly dangerous, especially when a single grenade can trigger an avalanche or bury the battlefield in tons of snow, ice, and rock. So, when fighting a battle in the Hishria Mountain Valley, the following rules apply. Frozen blizzards and avalanche risk. So frozen blizzards is just a weather effect table. So it's a D3 table. You can have deep powder. The snow continues to pile high hampering warrior's efforts to advance quickly into position. Each time a warrior that cannot fly advances, no more than three inches can be added to the move characteristic of models in that unit. Frozen fog, a bone-chilling fog descends on the battlefield, closing around the warriors and dropping visibility to a mere fraction of what it was. Units that are more than 24 away cannot be seen and cannot be targeted by any attacks. Ice shard blizzard, razor-edged hail pelts the battlefield, slicing open flesh and even puncturing through light armor. Such a blizzard is particularly dangerous for aerial units the shards damaging engines and turbines with ease. Every time a vehicle model starts or ends a move within three inches of a terrain feature, roll 1d6, adding one to the roll if that model can fly. On a five to six, the model's unit suffers one mortal wound. On a seven plus, it suffers d3 mortal wounds. I quite like, these are really cool. Yeah, yeah. They, especially feel- like especially like not being able to move and not being able to see each other it's yeah it's a really cool kind of it kind of just completely changes things doesn't it yes yes and i wonder and that- did, did you consider the fact that uh you um can't be seen and cannot be targeted ah oh, no that's a shame i was going to say you could potentially in your in your force you could have mortars because you don't need to see the enemy to be able to target them with indirect fire right but it does say cannot be targeted by any attacks, not just cannot be seen. Yeah. So never mind. Scrap that. Um, and then last, the, the the second thing is avalanche risk. So with frequent heavy snowfall, this theater of war is at constant risk of avalanches. Over the course of the game, each time any models fire particularly devastating and loud ranged weapons, there is a chance they will cause an avalanche. In the shooting phase, each time a model makes an attack with either, either a blast weapon or makes an attack that inflicts four or more damage to its target, Make a note of the table quarter the attacking model is within. If the attacking model is within more than one table quarter, both players roll off and the winner selects which one of the table quarters. So at the end of each battle round, roll a d6 for the table quarter that has the biggest tally of avalanche counters. Uh, if there's a tie, roll off. Add the current battle round to the roll. On a six up, each unit in that table quarter suffers d3 mortal wounds. Note that the same table quarter can be hit by multiple avalanches over the course of the battle. So that's really quite cool, isn't it? So not yeah. only can you, like, you can't move around the battlefield properly, you can't see each other, your flying units are getting shredded by, you know, razor hail, and also <laughs> there's avalanches. Yeah. Cheers, easy. Yes, yes. I mean, that. that's... So this is definitely my favourite theatre of war. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, it, it feels... Uh... It feel, the, the environment feels as dangerous as the troops you're going to be fighting on it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> if not more so, given my rolling. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe this could be your new army, Dan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my new army is the Hishrian Mountain Valley. <laughs> what, you mean the Hishrian Mountain Valley troops? No, 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 no. My army <laughs> is the mountain. I just, just like throw ice cubes at people and be like this is my army i'm sorry it's pelting you with razor hail uh, so um the the next bit is the campaign agendas which we won't go into but basically there's a a list of agendas which can be very specific to your you know for example like you can only select this agenda if your warlord has the gene silly cults keyword yeah um and yeah so there's some specific warlords for the some of the various factions represented here uh, and then there is a uh a four page uh story about uh 
the Flashpoint. And that is the end of the article. So that gives us a, a little opportunity to break into our lists. So, Steve, what list did you write? What's your 25 power list? Tell me about it. Tell me about the history of mountain men. Right. So how are we going to bring these guys to life, guys and girls? Because we're going to have mountain men and mountain women. Obviously. Obviously. Because it's the they... 41st millennium. Exactly. Um, so I think for me, what I wanted them to be is the kind of my first rule is if they're operating in the mountains, we're not really going to have tanks. We're not really probably based on the um, shards of ice. We're not going to have flyers either. So we're going to be proper, you know, survival people living on the mountain so to that end we've only got things that that walk um i've got a captain leading us um he's gonna be known as a peak master um i'm literally making this stuff up but it was good fun to do and uh, he's gonna have the warlord trait of implacable determination so one unit within three can add six or it could only be three, depending. Uh, no, so actually, this is it. So implacable determination, one unit can add three to them. Within three inches of him can add six to their move. So that's not an advance. So what that means is, I'm thinking is, with him leading, say, the veteran squad that I've got, hunters, he can definitely force his way through what could be, you know, a blizzard that nobody else is moving about. So I wanted to give them the ability of being able to definitely get to where they needed get to where they need to go so i think for me it's um they're, they're going to be kind of mobile they're going to be cool because it gives you a way to like overcome the weather effects of the ice storms yes because they know the mountains they know how to they know how the sense. storms are yeah so i think for me that was, that was a good rule for bringing them them to life um because they're a new regiment i can uh, create my own regimental doctrines rather than I could probably have taken something else and just renamed it, but using the rules that we've got in the Greater Good uh, Psychic Awakening supplement, I've gone for Wilderness Survivors, which is just kind of a no-brainer. Um, but the rule there is uh, as long as you don't advance, uh, you count as being in cover, which, again, for me, that made sense. They'd be using every rock, boulder, pine tree, whatever it is, to uh, their best advantage. And then I've also given them Agile Warriors, which allows them to re-roll advances. So even if we are shut down on the movement, um, then at least we get a chance of getting that maximum three. So for me, that kind of gave them a really good kind of flavor of what I want them to do. Um, so the captain is called uh, Jim Adams, and James Adams was the name of uh, Grizzly Adams. So I thought that was quite good fun. So a bit of silliness there, but... He's got a name. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a sort of sense of um, living and fighting in the mountains was, um, although they are true to the emperor and they are, you know, being, we know that they are being, um, they, are, they are being, the, the missionaries are bringing the word to them, that, that there would be something slightly slightly different and i thought what i wanted to do is i've got a psyker but i'm going to, going to be kind of called a, called a cloud reader and the idea for that is the fact that they kind of see the what the mountain and the weather brings is is kind of what the emperor is telling them it's kind of an extension of the emperor and i think for me it's just that kind of slightly bit more in touch with the world around them but absolutely everything there's no gods of the winds and all that stuff there absolutely so that's, that, that's kind of my HQ. Then we've got three squads. Ooh. One important thing I've decided is that 
no one in the army except for HQ choices are allowed to take or use blast weapons. That makes sense. So that's probably going to skew me with some armies. I won't be throwing grenades all over the place or won't be throwing uh, frag grenades all over the place. But that, that that's, that's the plan. So I've got my three infantry squads. I've got a scout sentinel. Um, and this is going to be kind of like a, a, a mountain goat type one. So I'd probably adapt the feet slightly. They probably need to have snowshoes on or something similar like that. Um, I've got a veteran squad of hunters, so they're going to bring the special we- uh, heavy weapons or specialist weapons, sorry. So they'll be bringing the melters and that sort of thing because they've still got to deal with what they what they encounter. So, And I was going to have a minister and priest, so a representative of a missionary. So the missionary would, would go out with them and they would be happy for him to come along or her to come along because they're kind of bringing the word and I, and I guess in a way, you know, they've been called missionaries. So I think for me, there'd probably be a little bit of friction between the psyker and being the cloud reader and the priest saying, yeah, okay, you can say the clouds are what the emperor is saying, but that's not really quite right. And maybe we can have a little bit of friction between those. So, yeah, I mean, on paper, I don't think it's a particularly effective uh, 25 power level for an average battle. They don't have average battles. They play within the environments and within the uh, battlegrounds and within the flashpoint that we're talking about. So that's my first 25. What are your thoughts, Dan? I like it. And I like the fact that you've limited yourself to not taking blast weapons on the, on the kind of the line infantry. And uh, you've kind of, you've also brought in, you haven't just got these kind of like wild men and women of the kind of history and mountains. You've also got the the priest, which ties in with the, the existing narrative of the campaign itself. And also ties in with the stuff that we're told about the missionaries. Yeah. So I, th- I think I think I think that their abilities to be able to, you know, move quickly through these bad places, to you know, be agile, to hit and run almost in a way. Um, but they are they, they are still you know loyal um, Astra Militarum. So so when it came to so I've called them the the, the 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 Mountain Pass Patrol. That's what I've kind of bracketed that. Um, but as these are kind of ad hoc battalions that are thrown together, what I've decided is that um, when they get uh, bolstered to go for, for a bigger fight, they're going to become a, a, what they're going to call an avalanche battalion. And to do that, um, we have a command squad because obviously there's more command control structure. They're going to be operating further up the chain of command. So I have a command squad added. I've got one squad of three Ogrins. And I've got a one unit of six Bulgrins. So that's the avalanche. <laughs> so the idea is <laughs> they, they, they bring the rumble. Um, and I, I think in a way, I think you know, they might even be called the Yeti squad or something like that. So we, we can use some ideas, um, you know, taking the mountain theme. And then really I wanted to just boost what we started off with the Scout Sentinel by adding a, a squadron of three armored sentinel so that all fits tidily within the battalion so i'll keep saving my uh, my cp and again just making sure so we've got a bit of anti-tank there so you know uh, overall we've got some anti-tank we've got some combat we've got some objective holders and hopefully especially when they operate within history itself they should be a little bit more effective than you would imagine a you know an ordinary military force to be yeah i like that i think it's really cool i, I think it, it's, it's like you said it's tempting it's like ooh, maybe i'll just make the 25 power level Ooh, yeah, oh, how much is it? it yeah i mean i've got, I've got no games planned i don't really 
none of my mates are really looking to do Necron. So, you know, you're kind of going, ooh, and then, you, then you're saying about adding yours. So I was like, oh. I, I think it's put on the maybe one, but as an exercise in itself, it was great fun. And yeah, I think I think there's, yeah, I mean, just thinking about the scenery and stuff like that that you could make for it. And, um, you know, even if, even if you had, I think you'd probably go with um, Valhallen models because they've got great coats on and furry hats. Makes sense, and, doesn't it? Yeah, they're, they're kind of out of the box. They're the, the right ones to use. But again, whether you could mix that in with a little bit of kind of um, Nepalese banners or streamers or, you know, whether the whether the, the cloud readers got prior wheels or something. There's, there's things you could do that just add that little bit of unusualness to it. But, but yeah, no, that was great fun. So that's me. How, how did you come around to yours and what's the makeup then, Dan? Well, so I went for a, a small contingent from uh, a Lytok and I I wasn't certain where to begin because uh, apart from just spamming rangers, <laughs> uh, I wasn't really sure what to do. Uh, and I kind of like looked at the looked at the rules and I noticed that the uh, it's the, the ice shard blizzard uh, is is relating to vehicles rather than uh, non vehicles. So yes. the fact that it can fly is vehicles that can fly get punished. However, vehic- uh, non vehicle units that can fly can still don't get affected by ice shard blizzard and not only that uh, they can still advance the full uh, the full um distance so i thought that's quite a cool way to kind of like let's try and get some units with flying yeah so i i started off with uh, a couple of units of rangers uh, and i eventually ended up adding three units of rangers just because i had the, the power level for it uh, i needed a leader and i wanted a, a martial leader and a mystical leader so I had, uh, I actually went for Illic Nightspear. Okay. Um, which, whilst he is a special character, not necessarily the kind of thing that you usually put in a small 25 power uh, force. I thought he was incredibly thematic because uh, he's actually got a special rule called a bringer of true death. You can reroll hits and wounds roll of one for Illic Nightspear's attacks when they target a Necron unit. Ah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I thought that was a really cool way to add a bit of kind of anti-Necron kind of uh, theme to the to, to the list. Yeah, 100%. Now, uh, I then, uh, so I had Illic Knightspear and then my kind of mystical leader, if, if Illic is my uh, martial leader, I had a warlock, uh, just a warlock on foot, um, because I wanted this to be kind of a, a, a an infantry force. Uh, so that's four power and three power for Illic and Warlock respectively and then three lots of three for the Rangers and then for the, for the next for the final uh, I had nine power level uh, power left uh, I spent eight of them so I had one to spare and I just took two units of Swooping Hawks now I was thinking about having some different Aspect Warriors uh, but actually I wanted to kind of save the variety for the uh, for the for the next 25 power uh, because I thought it would make sense for a kind of a specialist force to go in with their rangers uh, and 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 another troop in support and i thought swooping hawks kind of worked quite well because they are you know they, they can fly they kind of they can be scouting around they can be you know potentially spotting things for the rangers already the rangers can be spotting things and bringing them onto target uh, themselves and i just thought that that was quite a cool way of of representing that and also there's that whole like you know the weather es- aspect of like you know the if all the visibility is low because of the the shards of ice in people's faces and stuff you know they won't see the swooping horse coming until it's too late yeah no that looks great and it kind of feels like me very much a 
kind of expeditionary force. They're 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 searching for something, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to kind of bring in like the big guns, as it were, um, because I wanted because I, I I thought about maybe striking scorpions, but also scorpions like the, the, just the concept of scorpions didn't really feel right for for the force. Yeah, and uh, same for howling banshees. You know, a a unit of something that uses noise as a weapon in a region that's like prone to avalanches. I thought, no, those girls probably aren't going to do too well in uh, in the uh, the history of Mountain Valley. They're going to bring down the avalanche on themselves. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I went for there. Uh, so warlord traits, I don't get to. Well, assuming Illic is the warlord, I don't get to uh, choose it because I have to give him the respective warlord of a Lytok, uh, which is puritanical leader, zealous in his belief uh, in the superiority superiority of his craft world this warlord inspires unwavering dis- discipline in their kin as long as all friendly units within six inches of your are lytok these units automatically pass morale tests so uh, that's another reason why i really like this force was because that actually ties in with the kind of fervent you know I, I guess like you've got religious fervor in the emperor whereas i've got puritanical zeal yeah so they're not going to be affected by the stilling because all my rangers are going to be within six inches of my my warlord, or, or could you know could be within six inches. So they're not even going to be uh, affected by by morale tests at all. Yeah, no, I I I love it. I think it's great. I think um, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios I can think about already. As you know, how ha- you know, both searching on the mountain for some archaeotech or uh, or even needing to take down a certain necron and we we both need to go and get that information we're trying to understand who they are and we can easily clash over that absolutely and i'll definitely be upgrading my one squad of my rangers to pathfinders uh which uh, is a stratagem that you use at the start of the uh, the enemy shooting phase pick an alitok ranger unit uh from your army that is in cover attacks that target that units in this phase will only hit on rolls of sixes irrespective of any modifiers so i i think like given that this is kind of a strict narrative game i'd like to think that maybe i'll pick one unit of um of rangers who are my pathfinders nice and maybe and maybe only being able to use that stratagem on that unit or something yeah as a bit of a maybe a, a self self kind of limit on the on that but maybe maybe they're all pathfinders whatever oh <laughs> when, when the dice start rolling I'll, I'll, I'll forget all this and be like yes we're using it fine <laughs> <laughs> the the uh the red haze comes down absolutely so what's how what how does it grow from there so how it grows from there is quite interesting because i thought i wanted to continue along with the theme of something fast hitting um and something quite tasty uh, but i didn't want to kind of go i guess too over the top so i didn't really want any vehicles so i even considered not having jet bikes but actually i thought that jet bikes were quite a cool way of um uh, of of bringing in some mobility that weren't kind of heavy vehicles yeah so this is a a quite interesting thing because i thought as i say i wanted to have something with a bit of punch so i wanted this to be like the elite squad that kind of came in once the Pathfinders or, or the Rangers had, had you know, found the target, this was the kind of heavy hitting thing. But I still wanted it to be quite light in, in concept. So uh, I, I went in with an Autark. So an Autark with swooping hot wings. And I wondered whether perhaps uh, an Autark with swooping hot wings, an Autark, you know, at this level, 
was perhaps a bit over the top. Um, but I kind of wanted someone to kind of be with my be with my swooping hawks. Uh, yeah. So an autark with swooping hawk wings to add a bit of punch there. Um, and then I went with a farseer because I, I like you know an, an elder force isn't complete without a farseer. Um, given that I've got a warlock on foot to to be with the foot team, I thought cool. I'll, I'll get a, a farseer sky runner to be. A, uh, a kind of to zoom around with the with the speed of a jet bike, but without kind of being you know too over the top, you know, yeah. keeping with that no vehicle theme, no kind of heavy vehicles. Um, and then I've got two units of shadow specters Ooh. who are the forge world units. So I just thought because they're such lovely models, and I have some already which I, I've been desperate to use in a force at some point. Uh, I don't don't own <laughs> majority of the rest of the army, but I do have these ones. Uh, so maybe I'll paint these ones up just just to be my my kind of a Hishrin Mountain a Valley uh, you know force. Uh, I've got two units just because I've got I've got two, um, and I thought that they kind of how they operate. They're kind of you know uh, uh, warp spiders would be another potential option. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they are the same power, but I just like the kind of shadowy nature of the the shadow specters. I thought it went well with the theme, and uh, yeah, they're quite they're quite they're lovely models, quite tasty in game. And plus, they're Forge World, and we've recently got that the new Forge World book. So I thought, what a great time to kind of throw them into the force. So just a brief note: I should point out that since the release of the Imperial Armor Compendium the shadow specters have actually gone up from four power to five power so the list i've actually given in this episode is incorrect so i'll go back to the drawing board and uh look at a separate 25 power and see how i might expand this army and perhaps i'll uh, i'll explore my update on a future episode It was then I had a few points left. I had about uh, five points left plus plus one point. I actually had six points left because uh, I didn't use one for my previous 25. Um, and I was looking at something to go with my Farseer and uh, Skyrunners, Windrunners rather, Wind Riders. There we go, get the name right. Wind Riders are only four power, but Shining Spears are five power. So I thought, great, I've got the, the thing. So I'll take a unit of three Shining Spears to accompany my uh, Farseer Skyrunner into battle. Nice. And I like to think I, I probably would like I would think I might convert these to, you know, <laughs> talking as if I'm going to do them. You know, these <laughs> won't these will be like mounted pathfinders. So they won't be shining spears themselves. They'll be mounted pathfinders. Nice. Which I thought would kind of be, you know, I, I literally just made that up. That's not a thing. Um, but uh, sod it. This is narrative gaming. We can do what we want. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I, I, I didn't want to go too aspect heavy. Having having taken, you know, Shadow Spectres as well as swooping hawks i didn't want to i didn't want it to be like a one of everything force so kind of making these like mounted uh rangers or mounted pathfinders i think i like to think mounted rangers would be wind riders and mounted uh pathfinders would be shining spears yeah i just think that would be quite cool so this is this is kind of the strike a bit like yours you've got the uh the mountain patrol the mountain pass and the avalanche i've got the kind of the recce element and the strike element um so yeah there we go that's that's my uh that's my army I think what, what I like about yours is that it feels clandestine. It feels like it could move between Necrons and the Imperial forces on the planet. Do you know what I mean? It feels like they've got that mobility and that stealth to be here in one place at one time and then just disappear into a blizzard and appear somewhere else, you know, a day later. Uh, they're not all foot, foot sloggers. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it definitely feels like a, a clandestine uh, uh secretive mission type thing which kind of matches what we, we the little we know about them from in the in the story so it's great 
Yeah, no, and that's. I'm glad you said that actually, because that's that's exactly what I was going for. I was meant going for something that that was a bit mysterious and that had that that element of kind of, as you say, clandestine nature. Um, one of the, one of the other things that I thought would be quite cool would be um, if I was going to change the warlord. So let's say I went for the Autark as the warlord rather than Illich Nightspear. I would then get the choice, and uh, I thought an Ion Distant Events would be a cool thing to give give my warlord. Uh, which is enemy units can't fight Overwatch at your Warlord. And I think that is a quite a cool kind of nod to that unseen force of like, I could drop my Autarchs in, uh, drop my Autark in with my Swooping Hawks, and then he could then charge the enemy. Enemy units can't fire Overwatch at him so that then he gets in combat with them and then they can't fire Overwatch at subsequent units because he's already in combat with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so then maybe he could he could drop in, like the Swooping Hawks could blast some stuff. And meanwhile, he goes to charge a unit uh, to to lock a unit up, and then in come the uh, the far seer and the shining spears as well. No, just, I, just like this kind of like precision strike, like coming out of the uh, the shadows, out of the uh, the hail. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd, that'd be so cool because all the kind of vectored effects of the flyers would be creating all sort of vortex vortices behind the the bikes as they go through. It would look really cool. Yeah, definitely. Like coming out of the mist. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's my little crusade force. Um, obviously, incredibly tempted now to get it. <laughs> I think I think the other thing I wanted to add was that obviously we reviewed in a different show the crusade book mission pack beyond the veil but i think this flashpoint when you combine it with the battle plans that are in there with mission plans you really it really starts to come together and there's one in here which is called um combat patrol mission lying in wait so you've got one one side has a critical mission asset the other side ambushes and the mission objectives are no prisoners destroy their assets preserve preserve your forces so I won't read it all out, but basically, immediately, I think the power of that pack has been actually been increased by overlaying it with the flashpoint. And I think for me, that's where we're really getting some really, really, really good narrative tools for play. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think as we get more of these flashpoints, I'm guessing we'll get more from the prior Nexus Um would just you know just make it more and more fun to play in yeah undoubtedly and i think it's that layered way is you you can either just play something out of the book or you can play something out of the book but with uh, a little bit of narrative tweaks like coming from this 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 uh white dwarf article or indeed you can say hey i want to run on a planet and we don't have rules for that planet so i'm just gonna do my own thing and make it up yeah yeah exactly because i think i think the other thing you know what we've um what we could easily interact with here is that from the um crusade book the beyond the veil they have uh relics so relics of the nexus which obviously we're looking you're looking to collect points to level up and that could be absolutely what your force is looking to do it's trying to track down a a, a relic to make sure it doesn't fall into the hands so you're going to then be doing in do doing the investigating so that's where you accumulate your investigation points which then allow you to study the artifact so you know there's a set of rules here already for you to actually bring your army to life and then you know you're going to be doing your searches and your investigatings up into the mountains and you're going to bump into my men and women and they're going to fight you back and i think you know and then we're going to learn something about what you're trying to do and then they will decide that we want it um, yeah and it does really combo well with those um uh, investigation points doesn't it yeah really yeah. really incredibly quite thematic yeah so I, th- I think 
for me, I'm going to make sure I get, you know, all of these flashpoints. Even though they're great in themselves, the ability to overlay them and the ability to then have them as a toolbox to say, right, we're going to play a normal game, but actually we want some we want some weather. We want some rain weather. What's that going to be? Don't worry. Boom. We've got some. Roll D3. We're good to go. So... Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely going to I'm definitely going to I'm I'm really glad I've I've got a subscription to to White Dwarf if these if this is the kind of content they're putting out at the moment and I might even scan these pages and and then put them into a binder like all the flashpoints together and, and to be honest I wouldn't be surprised if you know over the course of of next year you know some they they release a a, a flashpoint annual you know Christmas next year they yeah put all the the white dwarf articles together and release it as a, as a product kind of like how they've done so for like uh the blackstone fortress annual yeah yeah no that would be great i think that you know we've got lots of books and you know i don't particularly have a problem with lots of books i love books i'd much prefer them than <laughs> the pdfs it might be the old man in me but um i think i think yeah just excited to what's the next flashpoint What's it going to be? What's it going to be? You're just too excited, aren't you? You've, you've, yes. You're a hyperactive cryo volcano, Steve. <laughs> I am. I am. Although I have put the heat on because it's getting too cold at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That is the Argovan system, the Ashes of the Imperium Argovan system campaign review. If you if you like what we've done here, let us know. Uh, we'd love to kind of hear what your thoughts are. Obviously, this is the first time we've done a, a proper deep dive into this campaign system uh, because this is the first one that they've done. So yeah. if you like it, let us know and we'll, we'll make sure we do the next one when it's, when it's released. Uh, otherwise, we will be back to our usual schedule of narrative content and book reviews and all that jazz in a future episode. So if you want to uh, follow us on Twitter and see whether or not uh, we've been working on any uh, of our Argoven forces, then you can find Steve at... I'm on Twitter and it's at TinRacerSteve. And I am on Twitter at DangerMouse425. But most importantly, the podcast is AOTI40K on Twitter, Facebook, and indeed Instagram. You can send us also an up to 60 second voicemail. So if, if you are yourself working on an Argovan system crusade force, do let us know. We'll play your message on the podcast and we'll, we'll chat about it. Uh, if you want to send us multiple uh, 60 second snippets, you can. Uh, or indeed, if you just want to email us a, a longer a longer chat through your force, we'll, we'll play it on air and we'll chat about your force. And uh, that is anchor.fm forward slash AOTI40K. Or you can just email us. We are ashes of the Imperium at gmail.com. Until next time, keep calm and crusade on. Cheers, guys. <laughs>